America, the 1920s. The Entente had just defeated the Central Powers and won the Great War. The economy of the United States of America was booming. This boom resulted in lavish parties, beautiful cars, and new technology being unveiled at every world or state's fair. And while every American used their radios and gramophones to dance the night away, little did they know a new form of home entertainment was about to be created. On Wednesday, September 7th, 1927, Philo Taylor Farnsworth finally completed his work. While in high school, the young Farnsworth had had an idea. What if we could transmit moving images like we transmit radio signals? After years of hard work, experimentation, sleepless nights, and probably one or two arguments with significant others, he finally unveiled his creation, a crude monitor showing the image of a single line. Later, he would show a dollar sign on this new invention to answer one of his investors' questions. When are we going to see some dollars on this thing, Farnsworth? Philo Farnsworth had just created television. W2XK, experimental transmitter of the National Broadcasting Company. We are operating on a frequency of 52 megacycles by authority of the Federal Communications Commission. How about a bottle of Coca-Cola? Oh, thank you, Mr. Tompkins. another step closer to the moon. Aboard these manned Apollo flights, three astronauts, and with them, Tang. Tang. Nobody has the movie I want. Hey, if it's on video, Blockbuster probably has it. I mean, we have over 10,000 videos. Wow. There's a better way to rent movies. As many as you want for just 20 bucks a month, and no late fees. Go to Netflix.com. Make a list of the movies you want to see. The way we Americans watched movies has changed dramatically in the last few years because of the man who thought up and started up a company called Netflix. Now more and more of us rent While numerous attempts had been made to transmit images via electronic signal before, Farnsworth had succeeded where others could not, and a new age began in entertainment. However, for television, it took some time before it was widely adopted. Like film before it, television was viewed as a niche new invention that would quickly be forgotten and replaced with another niche new invention. Well, Sheriff, I... Robbery and murder, eh? Well, you didn't get away with it. It was nothing more than a fad, they would say. They being the advocates for radio, film, and theater. Which I find ironic, since a few years earlier, these same critics were bad-mouthing film as nothing more than a fad. Sadly for a time, those critics seemed to be right. When the Great Depression struck the world's economy on October 24, 1929, or as it would become known Black Thursday, the amount of money and resources that were spent on entertainment plummeted. People were far too busy scraping by on pennies, running illegal moonshine, and hacking up their lungs from the Dust Bowl to bother with a new form of media. And when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, decided to address the nation weekly to bolster spirits and assure people that work was being done to save everyone from this hellish capitalistic apocalypse, he didn't turn to TV. You people must have faith. 
You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem, my friends, your problem no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail. He turned to radio. As nearly hopeless as a military situation can be, two-fifths of the French army was lost. It wouldn't be until after the Second World War that television began to go places. After World War II, the United States saw a massive increase in its economy, partially due to loaning out billions of dollars of equipment to allied nations and expecting that money back, and also partially due to the rapid overhaul of the nation's industrial capability during the war. Suddenly, America was richer than ever. The Roaring Twenties had nothing on the Fifties. With a booming economy comes also a booming housing market, and a booming housing market means more homes are being built and bought left and right across the nation. The whole white picket fence thing? That wasn't a dream for these people. It was real. So when everyone has money, people who want to make even more money find new things to sell. In 1946, there were 6,000 TVs in American homes. By 1951, there were over 12 million. By 1955, over half of American homes had at least one TV. The first golden age of television had finally begun. As decades passed, TV also changed with the times. While originally it was simply a replacement for radio, with radio hosts reading the news like they would on the radio but with a camera pointed at them, TV quickly came into its own. Variety shows, film reel news broadcasts like those seen in theaters during the war, animated shows, and even game shows began to play in over half the homes in America every day. By the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, every American had their own favorite TV shows, favorite news broadcasts, and every American was being sold products through televised commercials, which in the 50s and 60s were very simple and were often nothing more than showing the audience the product while saying, buy this, trust me, it is what we are saying it is. This rise in advertising plays a big part in our story. So remember this that point. Delicious sunbeam bread gives you. Entertainment in America was flourishing. And whenever mediums like film made a great technological leap, within 10 years, TV followed. But TV had things that film did not. It had recurring audiences for continued storylines and virtually guaranteed income for investors. Families watching TV together could eat a full meal, go to the bathroom, get up and leave, come back, keep watching, and they wouldn't lose much of what they were watching, since TV could rerun syndicated shows forever and still make a profit, and a large profit at that. But in the 70s and 80s, TV gained another step on the ladder towards film's technological prowess. Pioneer Combination CD Laserdisc Player. Whatever you've missed in the past, from this day on with the Betamax, you are the controller and preserver of time. Record up to six hours on T120 VHS cassette. Laserdisc, Betamax, VHS, feature films being watched at home. These radical inventions changed how moviegoers consumed their content. However, when home movies started, 
it was often far too expensive for every American to purchase their own copies of every film they liked. So some smart entrepreneurs came up with a solution. In the late 1970s, a man named David Cook was operating Cook Data Services, which made and sold software to oil companies throughout the United States Southwest. However, this company really wasn't raking in the profits, and David was always on the lookout for new ways to generate income. It wasn't until his wife, Sandy Cook, wanted to get into the video entertainment world that David Cook began to seriously look at this new opportunity. In 1985, the very first blockbuster video opened, and when David started seeing the profits from this new venture, he left the oil industry altogether, focusing solely on video rental. In 1987, Blockbuster was acquired by Wayne Huizenga, the co-founder of Waste Management, a massive, you guessed it, waste management corporation. Throughout the rest of the 80s, Blockbuster expanded and began buying out their competitors as well as expanding their services. They quickly became known as the place to rent all of the latest film releases, as well as a place to rent video games for the new and growing home video game market. While all this was going on, the world of TV programming was changing too. Large multinational television conglomerates had grown to immense size and power and had virtually taken over the TV entertainment world. And a lot of these conglomerates were originally film studios who saw television initially as a rival, then as an opportunity. This also coincided with the rise of cable and satellite TV. People switched from the poor quality and reception of antenna to the new and more stable quality of cable boxes and dish relays. Even with this switch, TV shows remained mainly the same for decades. Game shows, cheap scripted every week was different dramas and comedies, terrible soap operas, and of course your local news was about all you could get from your TV. But in 1999, HBO changed the world of television forever. with the airing of the pilot episode of The Sopranos. You see, most TV programs lived off of the paltry budgets assigned to them by networks who made revenue off of ad time. But HBO was different. HBO was a paid channel. In order to watch anything on their network, you had to add a monthly fee on top of your cable bill. This meant that HBO had way more money to work with. And when the first episode of The Sopranos aired on January 10th, 1999, Prestige Television was born. Amidst this world of home video rental, cable, ads, the birth of Prestige TV, and the ending of a millennium, two men started a new company. In Scotts Valley, California, Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph started Netflix. The story goes like this. One night, Reed Hastings rented Apollo 13 on VHS. Uh, again, please. Houston, we have a problem. And he forgot to return it. Right when he finally remembered to get it back to his local blockbuster, six weeks had passed and he was fined $40. Instead of paying it and moving on like most people, he held onto his frustration and decided that he would start a competitor so that this situation would never happen again. But according to Mark Randolph, it's all marketing BS. 
See, according to him, he and Reed were simply carpooling to work one day and started pitching the idea of an Amazon competitor, since Amazon had started a few years earlier. They brainstormed selling everything from surfboards to dog food through the late 90s dial-up internet, or as we like to call it today, an abomination to the years. After their long California traffic drive, they finally settled on the idea of mailing out movie rentals to customers' houses using the newest in home video technology, DVD. To test their idea, they drove to a local record store and bought a CD. When, after mailing it, it arrived intact to Reed's mailbox, they knew their idea might just work. August 29, 1997. Netflix is registered and started using a $1.9 million fund from Reed Hastings. Reed was now the board chairman of the company with a 70% ownership and Mark was the CEO with his own minority shareholdings. You see, Netflix worked like this. They would buy new movie releases on DVD in bulk from distributors, then pack them into white envelopes and mail them to customers who paid Netflix a monthly fee. But the customers could hold onto the film as long as they wanted. Eventually, those white envelopes became yellow. Then finally, the iconic Netflix red. At the end of their first day of business, which was April 14, 1998, Netflix had a grand total of 137 orders. By the end of 1999, they had 239,000 subscribers and a title library of over 3,100 films. But by the end of the year, growth began to slow. And as a reaction, Reed demoted his partner and co-founder to president and took over as CEO. However, the company still wasn't profitable. And in 2000, Reed approached the CEO of Blockbuster, who was at the time a man named John Antioso, to buy Netflix for $50 million, which he turned down. By 2001, Netflix had over 1 million subscribers, and in May 2002, it went public with a value of $309.7 million. Netflix also expanded their delivery service by building new warehouses across the country and providing overnight delivery of their titles. However, with all this growth, it wasn't until 2006 that Netflix would finally become profitable. By this point, Mark Randolph, the demoted co-founder of Netflix, had already left the company, selling all of his 166,000 shares. Now, as Netflix is enjoying its rise to prominence, the old video rental companies are realizing that the train has left the station and they sure as hell aren't on it. When in 2007 Netflix offered its latest service, the coffins were already built they were just waiting for the corporate corpses to fall in. In 2007, in Canada, Netflix launches a trial run of on-demand streaming. 1,000 titles could now be streamed live into your home without the need for DVD players or the slight hassle of mailing things back and forth. By 2010, Netflix went from a DVD by mail company to a streaming company that offers DVD by mail. It was also in 2010 that Blockbuster, the first big nationwide video rental chain, the company that turned down buying Netflix for a now measly $50 million, effectively died. Video rental chain Blockbuster has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection by declaring bankruptcy. For those of you paying attention, this documentary episode is called Netflix, The Rise and Fall. And some of you are probably saying, Ryan, we have only been talking about the rise. Where is the fall? I'm here for drama, damn it. Trust me, we're almost there. 
For Netflix, the beginning of the end starts with one of their best company initiatives. In 2012, Netflix started making its own original shows. Netflix's first original show was titled Lilyhammer, an American-Norwegian show about a former New York mobster trying to start a new and quiet life in Lilyhammer, Norway. After Lilyhammer, came Netflix's House of Cards, the company's first true smash hit series, which drove tens of thousands of people to get a Netflix subscription and see the new political drama that everyone and their mom was talking about. While the show ended on a sour note, since its star, for the sake of us not being sued, allegedly turned into a pedophile, this series was a milestone moment for Netflix and streaming in general. Finally, a prestige-worthy show was available in every home whenever you wanted it. With the releases of Lilyhammer and House of Cards, Netflix had effectively introduced the world to binge watching or releasing an entire season at once so viewers could watch it all at once or in segments as they saw fit. This rapid growth in original content, plus a rapidly growing library of other series and films, caused Netflix to begin operation in over 50 countries in 2015 and over 130 countries by 2016. But with all meteoric rises, comes the potential for a painful fall. One of Netflix's most watched programs ever was the American show The Office, with over 57 billion minutes watched in 2020 alone, which is a thousand straight years for those of us who don't want to do the math. This show was one of the most watched in streaming history. Beats Battlestar Galactica. Bears do not... What is going on? And it still didn't even account for 15% of total Netflix views that year. You may be asking, what's the problem here? These are amazing stats, so what could possibly be wrong? Well, the problem is this. Netflix didn't make The Office, and every year they had to pay huge amounts of money to continue streaming it for their customers. So, for all of The Office's views, Netflix wasn't making anywhere near as much as they hoped. So, Netflix decided to push original content even more, releasing show after show to increase their library. When Netflix decided that they had enough original content to start letting these licensed shows go, they began to. However, for some of them, like The Office, Netflix didn't even have the choice to keep them. Because by now, Netflix had something it had never had before. Rivals. In the years since Netflix's rise, numerous new companies had started their own DVD rental and streaming services. Redbox, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, and even prestige television icon HBO were all now beginning to directly compete. They were offering their own exclusives, as well as access to libraries of content that Netflix never had or no longer had the rights to. With all this new competition, Netflix began to feel the heat. While their original shows had good viewership and their customer base was still growing, the corporate executives weren't seeing the growth they wanted, so new policies took over. If a Netflix original show didn't adequately retain or grow its viewership for two seasons, it was axed. Netflix also began to buy out the rights to make stand-up comedy specials because they were cheap and got tons of viewership. They also began to fund Netflix original documentaries. Documentaries are also cheap and easy to make. And while the first original documentaries to air were generally quite good, Soon, Netflix chose quantity over quality and began to flood their library with documentaries, stand-up specials, cheap original films, and even recently, their own cheap reality TV. 
While this was happening, monthly prices began to rise, especially since Netflix had started offering 4K content in 2014. If Netflix was the only option, like the olden days, this wouldn't be a problem. But it's not. Hulu, $7-$12. Prime Video, $9-$12. ESPN Plus, $7. Disney Plus, $7. HBO Max, $10-$15. Peacock, $10. Paramount Plus, $5-$10. Apple TV Plus, $5. The list goes on and on. If you had a basic subscription to all of those services, it would cost over $75 a month. If you want 4K content, no commercials, the best of the best, it would cost you well over $100 every month. And that's not even counting people who use game services like PlayStation Plus and Xbox Game Pass. With the increase in competition, the loss of a ton of content, the constant canceling of original shows who have built up dedicated fan bases, the release of terrible original movies that were passed over by normal film studios for a reason, and the rise in number of competitors, Netflix finally started to lose money again, which caused some investors to panic. With the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Netflix saw a massive increase in profits, going from $1.2 billion in 2019 to well over $5 billion in 2021. So why are we documenting its rise and fall? About the trouble at Netflix, and it's only gotten worse since then in those 24 hours. The company that pioneered streaming is now stumbling, with Netflix reporting a loss of 640,000 subscribers in the US and Canada. In 2022, According to Rotten Tomatoes, Netflix lost over 200,000 subscribers, with many saying it was too expensive to maintain all of their subscription services, and others saying Netflix just doesn't have good content anymore. This has caused Netflix to start making radical changes, offering new and terrible ways to make more money. Remember earlier when I talked about TV getting ads in the 50s and 60s? Well, now advertising on television is worse than ever with some ad breaks in the United States reaching well over four minutes in length, ruining the emotional state or dramatic tension of any show you may be watching. One of the benefits of streaming is not having to deal with corporations trying to shove their products down your throat every six minutes. But recently, according to various news sites like Ars Technica and even the New York Times, Netflix has internally announced an ad tier, meaning the cheapest option for Netflix will soon include paid advertising, and not just between shows, but during them, even Netflix originals. Netflix has also begun a crackdown on password sharing, which is one of the ways groups of friends, roommates, and long-distance families share the cost of Netflix. Corporate decisions like this have caused consumers to begin to lose faith in the original streaming giant. More people than ever are dropping Netflix in favor of other streaming services. And according to MakeUseOf.com and Vice, internet piracy, or the illegal downloading and streaming of digital entertainment content, is on the rise and rapidly approaching pre-streaming numbers. So now we have to ask the question, is Netflix dead? The answer is no, not yet, but it does seem to be dying. And unless they take a good hard look at their business practice, and unless the entertainment industry suddenly changes and goes in a new direction, we will very likely be looking at the return of old television. With the ads, lack of binge watching, price gouging, and lack of customer control. I hope that this past-become-future nightmare never happens. But 
multi-billion dollar corporations have never cared about the consumer experience. All they want is your money. And if going back to the old way of doing things makes them more, then that is what they will do. So, to close out this documentary, Netflix may not be dead, but streaming as we knew it is definitely dying.